Let's pray. So God, we are celebrating you this morning because you initiated a story of love that is unparalleled. And so we celebrate that. And Jesus, you are the main character. You are the one that was obedient to the Father, that came down, modeled love, showed love, spoke love, that we can understand the heart of God. And so we celebrate you in your name today. God, I ask that you would then, as the Father God, uh, do a mighty work in our midst this morning, that as we open the word that is your letter to us, I, I ask God that our hearts will not be distant, that we will not be calloused or go through the motions, but we would receive. And Jesus, as we then uh, speak of you, that your heart is aroused, and as you advocate before the Father God on our behalf, that you will advocate uh, for on our behalf here this morning that you would uh, see that, that yeah, there would be a new work, a fresh work in our hearts that we would uh, have a new love, a new level of respect for your Father and for your journey among us. And so we give this service to you and we glorify the Father and we exalt your name. I also ask that as we go into these, uh, these days of shopping or, or family gatherings or so on, Lord, that you would uh, make us mindful of the love that you have for us and that we would not uh, just go through the motions of, of the busyness that comes, but rather just different points, Lord, that you would arouse us in love for you and that the, then the fruit of that would be compassion or empathy or a servant's moment where we can serve another person in your name and so we declare you exalted we glorify the father and may this service continue to be used uh, to your praise and glory amen amen we are certainly not done singing this morning and as i shared in first service it's not because i am going to be doing any solos so uh um, it, it's funny because uh, I, when I see what Ken does with the team and, and, you know, first of all, our drummer has a very little window to be able to see what's going on. Um, I, I just look and say, they, I really have respect for what the musicians do, for what the choir does. I actually, my first position in a church was as the youth and music minister in the church. And it nearly did me in. I almost left ministry altogether. Uh, I discovered that my calling is not leading worship. It is uh, doing what I do now, which is in leading uh, ministries and, and in teaching. But uh, So I hope you can appreciate what God does in the giftedness of people, that it, there is a large, vast uh, experience that was up here and many stories of God's love. Uh, here before you. So at this time, we're gonna, we're gonna go into the scriptures, and yes, we're gonna be reading uh, some portions that you're used to hearing this time of year, but we're gonna go into some other portions that you may not. And so I'm gonna ask you to turn to two places to start. We're gonna be in Luke chapter one and Philippians chapter two. So uh, you can pull out your uh, phones, your tablets, and you can go right there. So Luke chapter one and Philippians chapter two. And if you wanna be really, really advanced, uh, at the end we're gonna be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter one. Uh, so if you need a Bible, the ushers would be glad to provide you one so you can follow along. I'd like to just uh, lay the groundwork for the approach of reading, again, some fam a familiar story. The groundwork being that love doesn't always come in the way you expect, or that love is expressed best in the way you think is best. And I wanna give some examples of where maybe for us sitting here in this room, it is very strange the way some might show love, especially in the way some might parent. And so, uh, I, now I'm gonna assume here for a moment that nobody here in this room grew up in Nordic countries. Am, am I correct in that? Unless somebody identifies separately. Okay, so now you have no idea if I'm telling you the truth, which is good. So. <laughs> Um, Nordic women apparently have this practice, uh, I was researching it online, that they have this practice that I, as somebody who's more in the lower portions of, of the globe, uh, would find this extremely strange. But Nordic women growing up and again, and leading and raising families in a very cold place, and just in case you don't know where the Nordic countries are, it, we're talking like Sweden, 
Finland uh, and Norway. Uh, sometimes Denmark gets included in that. But these, these Nordic states are very cold. They're, they're pretty far north as far as uh, inhabited countries in the world. But what they do is they practice this. The, these Nordic women practice this. They will take their newborn infants. They will wrap them up. They'll put a little bit of cream on the infant's face. They will then put them in a stroller and then take them outside into sub-zero temperatures and park the stroller so that they can take a nap. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, look at that. that. That looks a little odd and strange, but this is what they do. They literally, to help their kids learn to nap and to handle the environment of, the, of, the, of being far north, they would bundle them up put a little cream on the face so that the face doesn't get frostbitten, and then they put them out in sub-zero temperatures to take naps. Now the belief is, is that by the exposure to these elements um, will make them stronger, will make them more resilient in regards to uh, handling the temperatures of their country, and uh, it's supposedly, um, although they can't prove this, they're healthier, and, um, and then ultimately, they become more adaptable to harsh weather. Now, I can tell you that my wife was not raised this way. Because in the middle of July, if the air conditioning goes on, she says it's too cold. She will wear parkas in April uh, while watching a baseball game. So she needed to be exposed to the elements more often when she's younger. And so men, if you have a wife that it does not handle the cold well, turn the air conditioning or the heat off or take her outside with just a park on, put a little cream on her face and say, honey, this will help you. This is my love towards you. Some of you are like, I would never, never do that, nor would I. I'm just saying. <laughs> it would not go well in my home if I did that to my wife. But the reality is, is that, that for these women, they're trying to help their children adapt to the cold weather, which is extreme in those countries. And, and apparently, it works, and they swear by it, and, and it's been done for generations. Now, I don't know about the stroller side of it, but somehow they get their kids to nap out in those cold weather. Well, I'm going to go for a, a, another strange approach to parenting where it's strange but good love and I'm going to go with the uh, cute factor here for a moment uh, the harp seal uh, the harp seal look at that isn't that cute so the harp seal is a is a completely white seal and and their practice for how they raise their children is very different for the first two weeks the mother of a of a harp seal pup will take care of that pup for two weeks take care of everything you know feeding and and keeping them warm but then after two weeks they will abandon the pup on on a on a frozen piece of ice and they will leave and the pup has never been trained to how to search for food. They don't have the strength to search for food. They don't have anything keeping them warm. They're now isolated. It will take up to five weeks for that pup to get hungry enough to finally force itself to learn to find food and to eat. And it's found that if you rob them of that five weeks because again, they will lose a significant portion of their body weight because they'll have burned all the fat in those, in those up to five weeks that, that they finally get so hungry that they force themselves to learn to care for themselves. Now that parenting style would work very well. So parents, if you have an unruly child, all I would say is let them not eat for five weeks and then let them figure out how they can actually do the dishes, how they can turn on the oven and the stove, and that they can actually get their own fork and show them where the silverware drawer is, and, and they can actually start taking care of themselves. Wouldn't that be a novel idea? There's mutiny going on to my left. So, so you've got the, this approach of, of parenting that just says, listen, Unless they're forced to, how will they ever learn? How will they be able to learn to survive unless they do that? And this is how it works among that type of animal, is that they, they force it, that hunger finally gets into the place to learn. 
And then we have all kinds of normal stories that we get locally where you know that the different species of birds, they force their, their young out of the nest so that they learn to fly and learn to feed themselves, but it, it's time. They get to that place, and it's not age 26 or 27 that's now the average age for children leaving their homes. It's a, it's a case where, where they are saying, you know what, it's time. You need to learn to fly. And they kick them out of, that, out of the nest and they learn to fly and care for themselves. Is it risky? Yes. But is it essential so that they can survive? Absolutely. Now you might look at that and say, well that, that story of these Nordic women, that seems a little harsh. Or, or the pups, if you really started practicing that kind of tough love, that seems like it's really harsh and not practical because I don't relate to that type of parenting or that as being love at all. The reality is that when studying the current patterns of parenting in the United States, there are certain things that are beginning to show up as the common patterns of parenting and it is usually equated in the minds of the parent of being the most loving pattern of the way to raise a child. But let's check it out to see if it actually is that of loving. One of the number one approaches to parenting is being risk averse. What I mean by that is today, parents tend to keep their kids in a place where they could not get hurt or they would not get hurt and so they, they protect them from certain things, <clears throat> which is why, which is why today you will not see a new playground built with swings, with merry-go-rounds, uh, or, or, or things of trees where branches are low enough for kids to climb. Because that's too risky. Somebody might get hurt. And that risk averseness now pervades our entire culture is that uh, what some of us grew up doing, you're not even allowed to do or even have the opportunity to do because we don't want risk. However, there is an anomaly to this. For whatever reason, in the last five years, trampolines have made a great recovery. It is the number one risk-oriented toy in the world, and yet it's growing in America where you can't do anything else. So you can injure or get, be killed by, and by death by trampoline, but you can't climb a tree. So I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But nonetheless, we become a risk-averse generation of the way we raise our children. Secondly, we tend to then, as parents, run interference for our children because we think this is so much lo more loving to them to help them never feel conflicted, to never feel or experience difficulty, or to ever experience that they're actually not gifted or weak in a particular area. Because we don't want kids ever discovering that they can't do certain things because that will scar them emotionally. Well, some of you know how I feel about that because what ends up happening is you give trophies to everyone because nobody fails. And so then therefore at some point they discover because as a coach at some point it's gonna become, a, it's, a, it's the reality. Some kids can't do certain things. But we keep them from ever knowing it and we pretend that they actually can do it. And so therefore we avoid ever hearing that's just not how you're gifted. And therefore, you don't experience failure, but you can only experience success, or at least in the eyes of the parent. And, and as a result, this is what happens. When you go about that, where kids are, are, where parents run interference on behalf of their kids, here's what's becoming a norm in society. Kids are working less than they ever did before. It is true. They're working less hours than they ever did before. They deflect hard choices. When hard choices come, they deflect it because they've never been given a paradigm by how to deal with something that is very difficult to decide between. And so they deflect those hard choices, which then means they delay making decisions for their future, which is why adolescence has officially grown from what was in the 1800s. The adolescent years used to end at age 16. It now ends at 26.5 years. And there's, there's ways that they discern when adolescence ends, but you can do the research on that. It's very fascinating. But because of this, they don't know how to make hard choices. They don't know how to handle mistakes because they've never been told that's a mistake. And they also are working less. And as a result, they struggle then, because of these truths, they struggle with mental perseverance. Because if it gets hard, they don't know how to persevere through hardship 
which is why there is more need for counseling than ever before or the, 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 the number of people percentage-wise that are struggling with depression has grown so significantly is because we do not have the wherewithal or the mental makeup to know how to persevere through difficult things. We've become unmotivated as generations come and, and, and we're not as motivated to take big rests, risks. And we also then run into these key things in life that we're not expecting and we get shocked by them when we discover there's things I can't do. There are things I'm not good at and we become shocked by it and it becomes something we don't know how to handle. Now, there's some values behind these approaches to parenting. And when, when kind of studying about what, what the societies say are these values, well, number one's not gonna surprise you. The number one value that tends to guide how we parent or how we show love is that happiness is the primary aim, okay? So if happiness is the primary aim, then basically what's gonna happen is that you are gonna never do anything that would make you unhappy or cause you to ever to feel hardship or, or to feel uh, disgruntled or anything. It's always about happiness, even if it comes at the cost of somebody else. The other thing is that safety trumps risk-taking. The reality is, is that love in relationships is a risk, and people don't know how to handle relationships anymore because they're not willing to take risk in regards to relationships. It's interesting that today, marriage is at an all-time low in the history of the United States. The percentage of America that is married is at an all-time low. And it's because when you look at the, the, the surveys, the responses are is that it's too big of a risk. You could summarize it with risk-taking. We don't know how to do it. And the reality is love is risk. For those of us that are married, we know every day when we put ourselves in the full trust of our spouse, it is a risk that they're gonna respond and handle that with health and love. Did I say something wrong? Oh, there's some amens coming. That wasn't my wife, was it? <laughs> So, you know, the reality is, is that love is risk. You could just put the equal sign and it, and, it's, and it is equal to that. It is a risk. When you make yourself available to love on someone, even if it's just for a friend, it is a risk because they may not handle it well and you're putting your heart out there and you might get your heart crushed. It's just the reality of love. But these are the values. If, you're, if happiness is the primary end, it usually is self-centered because it's about your happiness. Or, or then safety, then trumping risk-taking means that you would never actually start truly loving somebody with the full part of your being. And lastly, it's this idea, this path of least resistance. We're not willing to take risks that might actually be worth it in the end. Sometimes the hard path is the better path. It's hard up front, but it's better in the end. So the easy path up front often leads to a much more difficult end. But we convince ourselves it shouldn't be difficult. It shouldn't be hard. So we take the path of least resistance, even though wisdom might be on the other side of it. But that's the values of our parenting or the way we handle relationships today. It is a love that tends to be very limited and held in by the boundaries of risk or hardship or things that you may not like because we would never wanna feel that. God operates by a very different standard. And just looking at the way he parented this time and the story when it comes to his own son and the way he parented and guided Mary suggests that he operates by a complete different paradigm of what love actually looks like. And so I want us to go into that and we're gonna look at this very differently and, and realize that perhaps God is giving us a different view of what love can be so that our love can be more rich towards one another. And so we're gonna begin with the, where the story begins in regards to the birth of Christ in Luke 1, starting in verse 26. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me, to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, let's consider this for a moment. We know that story because we've been taught it, most of us have been taught it since we were young. And so it's so familiar to us that we really don't consider the oddity of how God went about this. First of all, you have a woman very young, likely young teenage years, who is told that she is going to have a child. She is pledged to be married. She is betrothed, so she's engaged, but she's never been with a man, and she's being told, you're going to have a child. That is strange in and of itself, that, that God would show up to a woman that has never been with a man and say, you are going to be a mom. And not just any mom, you're going to be the mother of the Christ child, the coming Messiah, of which all those who are of Jewish descent knew the prophecies of the Christ child that had been around for several hundred years. And they knew where he was gonna be born. They knew that he was gonna be born of a virgin. They knew all those things. Those things were stated in the Old Testament. And here it is. She is gonna become that virgin. But she is then asking what I think is a legitimate question. How can this be? I've never been with a man. And God simply says, I, I, or the angel simply says, it, it will be that God will overshadow you by his spirit, and then you will conceive, and therefore this boy will be called the son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I would say that still warrants quite a few questions. What does overshadowing look like? What, is, what will that mean? What will I explain to Joseph? How do I handle this publicly? I remember when my wife and I had our first appointment with the doctor once we realized that Kristen was pregnant. And I will tell you that when we went in and it was validated, yes, you're pregnant, my wife had a list of questions to ask. That's just normal. And yet we know that that childbirth, it, it has its place, and we know certain things, but they're just questions. She just asked one. How can this be? Because I'm a virgin. And all God says is, It's going to be me overshadowing you. What does that mean? And how am I supposed to handle this with Joseph? Are you going to say anything to Joseph? Or how am I going to handle this with my parents? What am I going to say to them? Because at this time when you are engaged, you are not around the one you're betrothed to. You're separate from them. And so it requires a lot of explanation to say that you're with child. And for Joseph, he would know, I've not been with you. So what would you say to him in that moment? She didn't get any of those answers. We're not told how that went down. We are told, however, that that Joseph found out and was planning to then, unbetrothed, if you will, to take away the the engagement and and to put away um, her silently because he thought she had been unfaithful. He loved her enough to try to make this not shame her, but try to help ease into it. But it's still going to bring question because it appears that, that minimally if he disassociates himself from her, then it appears that she was unfaithful to him. So it's, not, it's a significant public faux pas that is going on that they're not knowing how to handle it. And so what does God do when Joseph's making this plan to, to remove the, the commitment to Mary? He says, no, this child came as a result of the Holy Spirit. And so please take her as your wife, but do not have union with her until she's had that child. And that's all the experience he gets. He's told what to name the child, Jesus, and, and that's it. That's all the instructions they have. 
from there, they know certain things. They know because, again, they've been taught in the Jewish schools. They knew that the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem. So they knew at some point they were going to have to go to Bethlehem. They knew that, that because they were the tribe of Judah that this was possible because they, they do line up. They're both Mary and Joseph. We have their lineages. We know that they were both of the tribe of Judah and therefore the lineage of David so that we know that they were possible candidates for this. But they would have never thought it to be them. So here it is, they now have this assignment with very little explanation from God, very what seems to be little help from God. Now, I want to uh, go beyond just the public issues or challenges that came with this that seems like God didn't show much love in this. Let's consider this. Women of you that have ever given birth to a child that have been pregnant, would you say that your most excited time being pregnant was to go around driving in a car, hitting all the potholes that are found in Pennsylvania roads. No. In fact, most of the time, what I, when you're fully pregnant at that fullest end, you want to find the most comfortable chair uh, that can get, support your back and find that you are in, in a place where in a position that you can find relief from all the pressure you feel in your body. The last thing you want to do is feel bumps in the road. So anyway, you, you get this opportunity to then travel. So Mary doesn't have to choose cars. We know that she likely traveled by animal, probably a donkey going from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Have you really ever considered what that must have been like for her? It's 108 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 108 miles, you're fully pregnant, and you're likely not walking it, so we, that's why there's a strong belief she was on an animal. And it doesn't matter if you're walking 108 miles fully pregnant or you're on an animal for 108 miles. That is not a, a, a scenario that is enticing. And yet, this is God's plan. If I was to get every single person in this room a horse to ride for two hours this afternoon, most of you would not be walking normal tomorrow. And that's just two hours on horseback. Imagine being uh, for days, for 108 miles, on the back of an animal traveling. And then add to it that you would be eight months pregnant. Could you fathom what that must have been like for her? But yet, that's what God chose for them to go through. This is his plan. And, and so God, continuing to show his love, continuing to show that he was taking care of them, he prepared and made all the arrangements for them so that when they showed up to Bethlehem, that they have a perfect room for having that child. Again, if you know the story, God seems to have forgot to contact the concierge of Bethlehem. He did not handle this very well. It seems as though he kind of forgot an important uh, dynamic as part of the itinerary. It's like, you need a place to have this child when they get there. So they show up to Bethlehem. They're thinking that perhaps God's made a way because after all, they're doing this journey because of God and they're pregnant because of God. So surely God has something arranged when they show up to Bethlehem. That would be a reasonable expectation, right? They show up to Bethlehem Every single place is full. Why? It's because the tribe of Judah had to go and register for the census. So they're all in a small village of Bethlehem. It doesn't have that kind of uh, hotel power, if you will, to be able to meet the needs of all those people coming. And so they didn't have a tent. They didn't have the ability to provide coverage for having giving birth to a child. And so they're, they're looking for a place. And the only thing that was offered to them was the barn. It was the barn. And so therefore, you would think, okay, God knew this. God knew that there was gonna be no space. So when we get into that, that barn, we're gonna get in there and there's gonna be a nice little mat there that we can lay a child on. And there's gonna be the opportunity for a bed there that will help us be able to sleep so that God, because God knew we were gonna end up here. So they get into the barn and they show up and what's in there? Animals. Normal stuff that's in a barn. Nothing exceptional. And the only place that you could lay anything down was a feeding trough, what we call a manger. Now, 
That seems like God really missed his cue. Not only did he not reserve a place, but then in the place that they did end up going, there were no arrangements for that place for them to be able to have a child. Now, I grew up in, in, in north central Kansas, and I had the privilege of walking alongside my grandfather, feeding the cattle, cattle during the winter season when the cattle were not out in the fields. And so during the winter, they'd come into uh, the pens there on the farm, and every morning, he would go out, and he would take grain, and he'd pour it into the trough, and those cows knew what was coming, and they'd go in, they'd stick their head in there, and they would eat and lick all that grain out of there, and let me tell you, when it was done, you could see the slobber marks on the bottom of that feeding trough. You could see where their noses had rubbed and there was goop there. You would see that it was very dusty and dirty. It is not a place that I would want to put an infant child, even if that child was the daughter or son of an enemy. I would never do that. But yet, it's exactly what God did. So anyway, they, so you got this situation. It's like, okay, God should have arranged the location, God should have provided some means inside that barn, and God should have provided something other than, other than a feeding trough to put a baby in. It feels like God didn't have a plan. I mean, he's had how many years? I mean, thousands of years to plan this, and it feels like he did not consider a woman's or a child's need. Then you would say, okay, if, I, if I've asked my son to go and become a human being and that he's now gonna have to become a baby and be able to grow up uh, being a part of the human skin and going through the normal journey, the least I could do, the least I could do is provide a great party when he's born and make the guest list be those of great report and those who are of good standing in society. Who is the guest list to go and see the Christ child on that night? and over the next few days. You had shepherds who were considered to be the most, uh, what should I say, the lowest occupation among uh, the Hebrew nation. It's, they're kind of a dirty job. Culturally, they're con kind of considered the, the grease in the fingers type that's like, you know, they're, they're not the, the elite of society. So they got the shepherds, they're representing the Jewish nation, and then just a, a few weeks later, a few months later, then you get the second set of visitors that are part of the guest list, and they're foreigners, Gentiles, coming to see this king. This is not a guest list by a Hebrew father. This is not a guest list by those who want to esteem the Hebrew nation. If this is gonna become the king of kings and the leader that rise up out of Judah to replace uh, David, to be a part of David's throne, this is not your guest list. You would not choose the shepherds and you would not choose Gentile wise men from another place. And oh, back to our penchant for security and safety, you would think, okay, he forgot to provide a place to be, uh, to be able to stay, forgot to provide the arrangements for a nice birthing place, or he forgot to provide a little bed that could be for an infant child. Well, at least he could provide security, right? I mean, after all, it says he has legions of angels. So he would provide security so that this child would have nothing to worry about. The next time Mary hears from an angel on Joseph is what? It's when they're told in Matthew that they better leave quickly because Herod is about to kill all children that are male under the age of two. So not only did God not provide all the things for the birthing, but now it's not the safest place for them to be. In fact, it's the worst place for them to be. And also not just for him, but for the other children under the age of two that are male in the city of Bethlehem. So they had to run, and where does he send them? to Egypt. If you know anything about the relationship between Hebrews and Egyptians, you know that's not exactly an enticing journey for them to make. In fact, it's dangerous to go from Israel to Egypt, even at that time. And yet, that's what God told them to do. Go to Egypt until I call you back. Man, where is God at? This story doesn't line up that suggests he truly loves his son Jesus and that he's thankful and grateful for the public risk that Joseph and Mary have taken on. No, he has seemingly fallen asleep on the itinerary and not considered their needs. Let's get very specific as to just how 
strange of love that, that God has for his own son, Jesus. I want you to now look at that Philippians 2 passage that I'd asked you to turn to. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul writing again after the ascension of Christ. So Christ has now done his ministry. He's been on the earth and he's taught, he's led, and he's performed all kinds of miracles. He's died, he rose again on the third day, he's provided life, and now he's got those that are representing the good news of his life to the rest of the world. And Paul's one of those people that is sharing the good news. And Paul says this to the church in Philippi. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. So he's letting us in. He's, he's saying that there is a mindset of Christ that is different from the prevailing idea of the world. So we've just talked about what our values are for parenting, what our common values are culturally for showing love. And, and what he's saying is, no, we should have a mindset of Christ. So what's the mindset of Christ? It says this, when being in very nature God, in other words, he is in essence God himself. He is God, and so there is nothing that is elusive for him. He is all powerful. So even with all that, that access to power within him, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, what did he do? He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, so the nature of Christ is, is that it's very different. His mindset is he became, even though he had everything, as the son of God, he had everything. He emptied himself of, of, of all the rights of that. Did you not use that to his advantage and chose the nature of a servant? That's very strange to have everything, to have all power and influence and he chose the nature of a servant. And he did all of this. This is, this is where it gets really strange. He did all this because he was obeying God. In other words, his, his movement towards becoming part of us by becoming a child, becoming born. I mean, imagine he is being told and he knew the past. He knew the present. He knew the future. He could see all that because he was God. He knew all of that. And to be able to become humble enough to enter into human skin in the womb of a woman and then to go through the birthing process like any other human being and to grow up and going through toddler years, imagine that, he submitted himself to that because that's what the Father God told him to do. Now that's strange. If you're here and then your father tells you, I want you to go here to the lowest point and to become something so simple, it's something quite frankly so humbling as becoming part of your creation and not even just being inserted at a later age. No, he had to go through the full gamut of what it means to become human. All at the beck and orders of God. And not just becoming human, as humbling as that might be, but it, look, it says, and he was being obedient even to death. To the fullest end, death on a cross, so that you and I could have life for those, because the whole thing that God was wanting to do was to, to bring hope to mankind, to reconcile their relationship with us. And so in order to do that, he ordered his son to come. But it says that Jesus took on the nature of a servant and humbled himself, became human, so that he could live in obedience to God and glorify God, but also provide a bridge for you and I. But all of this, again, at the order of the Father, at the mandate of the Father. So you have this strange journey of where it seems like God put Mary and Joseph through the ringer. Where's the love in that? And then you see what Jesus himself has to go through. It's like, God, where's your love for your very own son, your one and only son? Where's your love for him that you would make him do what you're making him do? When you look at this, you say either you can come to the conclusion that God does not care and God is a killjoy or God just likes it hard or God has a different set of values that we need to consider when it comes to what does it mean to truly love. 
And that's where I believe, when you look at the whole of scripture, that's where you begin to understand, when you see the life of Christ, you realize he is eradicating the value system that us as human beings have established. He has a different value system that he wants us to understand. And the first value is this. Love, true love, goes to the greatest ends regardless of hardship or self-cost. That is contrary to what you and I usually operate under. Love, pure love, does not consider its boundaries to be that of which becomes hard or difficult, but rather what is essentially best for each individual, which then means hardship can be part of the journey, which means that that sometimes it isn't very easy, and yes, it can mean pain in order for love to have its best end where it comes at the benefit of others. Also, God's value was not just that love had no boundaries, but that was selfless or selfish or, or was avoidance of hardship. Rather, his love had no boundaries because it was built towards the mission of complete restoration. And that restoration was you and I. See, in the garden when Adam and Eve made that, made that choice to separate themselves from God by sinning and disobeying him, it created a pattern of where man now was separated from God. Our relationship with God was broken. There was nothing you or I could do. We've taught that over the last several weeks in our last series. But there is nothing you or I could do to reconcile ourselves to God. We are at our very nature, at our very nature, We're fallen beings. We're corrupt if left to ourselves. We're always seeking our own end. Sometimes we do things out of kindness, but more often than not, it's bent out of our own selfish initiatives. And so what God was trying to do and what he was doing through the the journey of Christ was that what was broken in the garden, I am going to fully restore I'm going to fully restore. And, and he says in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, there will be a day when that snake that brought all that harm by tempting Adam and Eve in that garden, that there was gonna be a day that snake's head was going to be crushed by the offspring of a woman. And that snake's head being crushed happened on the day when Jesus said, it is finished. While on that cross, he said, it is finished. So now, that moment when the snake's head, his victory laps that he'd been taken since the garden of, of holding in ransom all of mankind, that they're fallen in their nature. They cannot be reconciled to God by their own efforts. So they're stuck in this, this horrible state. And then in one moment, Jesus, the perfect son of God, who lived a completely selfless life and sinless life, dies on that cross being obedient to the Father and fully therefore restores mankind to God through the bridge called the cross. That is the story that happens and that's the kind of love that God has that he is willing at great cost with with not the boundaries of hardship because when you consider Jesus' life, it was hard from the beginning. But that's what it takes to reach a hardened heart and to harden people to realize that God is not willing to hold anything back to reconcile us to him. He knew that we could not do it on our own, and so therefore we needed something to be done on our behalf, and then Jesus provided that by his life and his death and his resurrection. And then we can then discover that restoration if we have faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Not by our own efforts, not by works, but trusting and and saying, I embrace the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on my behalf as I am a sinner and I cannot do anything to make myself right before God. That is the nature of God's values. Pure love and therefore a pure motive. His vision was to restore us. And lastly, he did it by the attitude of servitude. He did it in verse seven of Philippians two. He says, I ma- he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant. That was how he was going to do it. He was going to come and be on this earth. The son of God was gonna be on this earth to come to the lowest place to elevate you and I up. If Jesus chose to maintain his position of operating more like a kingly fashion, we would still be d- stuck in a pattern that is not healthy to us because it would be all about power 
It would all be about influence and control. But instead, what we were modeled was an attitude that was different. God created us with the intent that you and I serve each other. You need to hear this. That is literally what we were designed to do, is that we were designed to lift up each other. We were called to serve one another. That was the model that was intended from the beginning, and we had lost our way, and Jesus re-showed us what it means to live a life that's for the sake of other. So it's pure love without the boundaries of hardship or self-cost. It's the full restoration, the vision of restoring us and back in relationship with him. And it's being done through a servant's heart. And it's being done, lastly, to bring glory to God. I want us to turn to one last passage in 1 Corinthians chapter one. It's to the left in your Bibles from Philippians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Listen to what Paul is saying to the Corinth church about how God does things. This is his strategy. Again, pure love with no worry about cost or hardship. It is for your restoration and it's with a servant's heart that he does this. But he does this in the way he does it with such simplicity, with such a paradoxical approach from our life compared to his life and ways of doing things and and to do it from a different paradigm of thinking, look at what God does. And Paul highlights this. It says, brothers and sisters, verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God and that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one boast in themselves but let us boast in him. Let us boast in him. You see, God's value system is completely different. If he did it the way we would expect, there would be no glory going to God. We would say, of course he was born in a castle. Of course he was born with the audience being those of the socially elite. Of course he was born in the easiest of contexts. That's simple, that's believable. But when the creator of the universe says, I'm gonna do this differently because my values are different. I'm gonna have this child born in the worst place possible. I'm gonna have this child born into the most unlikely places that you would ever want an infant child to be. And this child will then live a life of simplicity. And his ministry, even though he has the powers of God, his ministry will be humble. His ministry will be about serving others and building others up. And just in case you might think I would make it really easy that his death would be a simple death, no, he chose the most difficult Difficult death known to mankind in his time. That is the path of God because he wants you to know, he wants you to know this isn't a human thing. This is a divine story. And his heart is different from our heart. His love is pure. It is about our end that he's doing this and he will go to the greatest measure of seeing us reconciled back to him. And to that, we are forever grateful. So we do this, he calls us. He called the unlikely and the apostles chosen. They were fishermen, for crying out, crying out loud. They were tax collectors, they were robbers of their own people. Those are the people he chose to be the first ambassadors of his good news. And then you look at this crowd and God says, I choose you. Who of us are of noble birth? Who of us have the influence that we could affect the world? But when you look at how we are just typical human beings, typical Americans, and then when your life is radically changed by God, look what God can do through you when you're so different from the rest of the world. God wants to do great things so that he gets the glory, and so therefore he chooses simple instruments to do that. Let's pray. So God, I confess that if I was writing this story and that I was choosing this path, I definitely would not have chosen a stable. I definitely wouldn't have chosen a manger. 
I wouldn't have chosen the guest list that you chose. I wouldn't have chosen the means of transportation or location or at least gotten them down to, uh, down to Bethlehem before she got pregnant. I, I wouldn't have chosen any of that. I wouldn't have chosen for the other babies to be at harm's uh, way because of, of Jesus being born. And I certainly wouldn't choose to send them to Egypt to protect them. And I certainly wouldn't have chosen that if he was going to die, that I would choose the worst death possible for him. But yet, God, what is inescapable is that your love is beyond ours. Your love goes way beyond our motives. And your love is a humble love that elevates. And ultimately, God, you want to make sure that we know it's not us that changes lives, but it's you. It's you that gets the glory. It's you that has the power. It's you that, 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 that is the initiator of this great love. And it's you we seek to emulate, not any, any other human being. And so therefore, we give you glory. We give you glory for the great things you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we exalt you. You were obedient to the Father. Even though this love seems quite strange to us, you were obedient to it, even to death on the cross. And as a result, we exalt you because your name is higher than any of ours. Your name is higher than anybody else ever having been born on this earth. And so therefore, we praise you, we exalt you. But I also ask Jesus that you would then advocate on our behalf that you would work in the hearts of those here that don't have a relationship with you, that have never discovered what it means to have faith in the work of Jesus Christ. So I ask that you would work in our hearts that as we declare your name, that you would change lives even as we declare your name. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Next week on Christmas Eve, we have services here at 11 a.m., 4.30 p.m., and 6 p.m. They're all identical. There will be a children's moment in each one of them. And uh, we want you to find freedom and being able to invite others to come and celebrate the Christ child with us. And that's a special day certainly coming. We also have a very special Sunday. Our first Sunday of January will be a special service as we consider as a congregation how our future will be. And we'll do that together. Having said that, let me read out of Philippians chapter 2 what I didn't read earlier, but now I read. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have declared his name today. We have celebrated the name of Jesus Christ. And now we go out of here with our hearts filled, filled with joy. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ that, that, where your faith has been made new and you're restored in a relationship with him, we would love to pray with you. We'll have people over by the kitchen door that's on this side of the room and we'd be glad to pray with you. We just want you to be touched in your heart deeply because a great story was unfolded in our time where we can read knowing exactly how God was gonna reconcile man back to himself. We know this and now we get to live it. So we celebrate that name. We'll close this service with a reprise, uh, lift up his name as we do so. So after this reprise, you'll be dismissed and enjoy going out celebrating with your families. <laughs>